Hebrews chapter 11 from verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abram, when he was called, obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith even, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead as the, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We'll have to stop that great chapter there for now so it's easy to see what this chapter is all about this chapter is all about faith by faith, by faith, by faith and this fits in if you look at the end of chapter 10 where he says um, my righteous one will live by faith in verse 38 and verse 39, uh, we are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So, in order to live a life that is acceptable to God, in order to be pleasing to God, you need to do one thing, you need to believe. You need to exercise faith. But then, everybody says that they believe at least in the context where we grow, grew up, where many of us grew up, it's very common for people to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I was taught about Jesus from a young age. I do believe. But this Hebrews chapter 11 shows you what real faith looks like. And that's why it's so important Everyone can have his own idea about what faith is, but there is a biblical faith, and there is a non-biblical faith. And this description of chapter 11 shows us what real faith looks like in practice, and it shows us the importance of faith. So, what do we read in verse 1? What does verse 1 tell us? Does anyone want to put it in their own words? Verse 
He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or the, and the conviction of things not seen. So, when you hear those words, assurance and conviction, what does it speak of? Mm. Of, of complete trust. Now, some translations also say that faith is the substance of things expected and the evidence of things not seen. Now that all depends on whether you take the Greek nouns objectively or subjectively. Um, I do think it makes more sense to take it subjectively as it is translated here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, being absolutely sure about what God has promised, even though you have not seen it yet. You must realize that that is what he is saying. A a naked reliance on the promise of God and and a firm and a full conviction of things which are not yet seen. But if he says it is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for and it is the conviction or the evidence of things not seen, then he says faith makes that which is still in the future so real that it is as if you already have it. It is not hoping as the word is commonly used today, this sort of, I just hope it will be that way. It is not, oh, I just wish it was that way. It is a a true conviction that this is the truth and that what God has promised that God will do. So, doesn't that sound then like faith is a leap in the dark? No, it's not a leap in the dark because it rests upon the character of God. Faith would be a leap in the dark if you just say, oh well, okay, this sounds good, I'm going to believe it and I hope it works out that way. But because the one who promised is faithful and trustworthy and he has revealed his truth in the word, therefore it's not just a leap in the dark. It is a relying upon the trustworthiness of the one who has made the promise. Hmm. Now I saw a simple example of this on on Sunday. Um, one woman in our congregation she was at a camp um, over the weekend, and two kids who live with her when she is there, they came to her house on Sunday, but she only came back Sunday evening late. They were already asleep by the time that she came, but. They just went to bed and went to sleep fully expecting that she would come. They were actually, like, as far as I know, alone in the house when they went to bed. But they just, I don't think they had any doubt. They know her to be trustworthy. She will do what she has promised. And they went to sleep simply expecting that she would be there in the morning. They hadn't seen it, but they trusted her. That's an example of, of... relying on the person. It's not just faith in a promise, it's faith in God. Believing the promise is the way that you exercise faith, but your faith isn't in the promise. Your faith should be in God. Because it's all about the one who made her promise. Now, The simple question, of course, for each one of us is, 
Is your faith this real? Are you convinced, convicted, assured? Do you know him in whom you have believed? Are you sure that he will do what he has promised? That you will inherit the eternal glory? He says that is the way that real faith is. It's not something that can be worked up. It's something which is a God-given gift. It's something which, unless God works this in you, you can't trust Him in this way. I mean, it's ludicrous to believe in someone you've never seen unless He has given you a real conviction. So, if you know that your faith isn't as real, just confess it to God. Admit it. It's no use playing games. Now, if you are assured, if you are this convicted or convinced, then you will live in a certain way. And that's the fascinating thing about this chapter. It's all about faith. But what he describes what the people did. You see, faith without works is dead. James says, show me your faith without works and then I will show you my faith by what I do. It's easy to say, I believe, I believe. The question is, do you act in a way that shows that you believe? When when the rubber hits the road... Do you exercise faith in God? Do you live differently from the world because you believe in God? Or is your faith all just a mental thing, a, a Bible study thing, a church thing? You see, it's difficult, real reality questions, these. He says, For by it, that is by faith, the men of old gained approval. Now, whatever theological system you prefer to believe in, please don't believe the lie that anyone was ever saved by the law of Moses or by keeping the law or something like that. The men of old gained approval by their faith. All people who were ever pleasing to God were pleasing to Him by virtue of their faith. It's all about whether you really trust and rely upon God. What is the first exercise of faith which he names in verse 3? Believing in creation. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now there's a lot of... um, apologetics ministries today, guys with all the evidence for creation versus evolution and all that and I don't have a problem with that, it's actually quite interesting and fascinating to watch it sometimes but you will always need faith to be really convinced, to be really sure that it is indeed the God of the Bible who created the world by speaking it into existence. I think it's pretty clear if you if you look at nature, you see the wonderful design of nature, you see all the beauty just now these past few weeks, the flowers which are so magnificent in the fields, um, you see all this beauty, all this design, then it is most rational to say there must be a God. 
But the heathen recognize there is a creator and then they've got all kinds of crazy ideas about the creator. You need faith to know that the God of the Bible is the true creator and he created it just as he said. It is by faith that we understand this. Now once again, He's not saying it's by faith that we hope this. It is by faith that we wish this. This is not wishful thinking. It's an assurance. It's a conviction. It's a reality. When you know that you found the truth, you know that you found the truth. And he says, then that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, the created things come from things which are invisible. You can put a lot of science into this that um, basically nothing can't just change magically into something, even though Richard Dawkins believes that it can, that nothing can explode and then you have a universe, but um, actually... Nothing can't um, just change into something. He's saying that the things which we can see were created by the invisible God. The things which are seen were not simply evolved or changed or developed from something which was already there. God created the world out of nothing. Ex nihilu, they like to say. Out of nothing. At least, out of nothing materially speaking. He didn't take matter and arrange it. There was no matter, there there was nothing physical. He spoke light into being. He spoke the planets and the stars into being. Of course, He, the invisible God, was there eternally. Uh, Philosophers like to speak about the uncaused cause of everything. The one from which everything comes, but He Himself is without beginning, without a cause. And if you are willing to think deep philosophically, then you actually come to the conclusion it must be that way. But we'll not go into that now. By faith, we understand that God created the world by speaking the world into existence. The worlds were prepared by the word of God. Now Paul Washer has something he says about this which is just amazing. He says, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke, and the plants took up their places, the stars took up their places. He spoke, and the plants on earth came up, and everything happened just as he spoke. And then he tells you to do something, and you say, no. The planets and the stars listened to his voice, but rebellious, arrogant little man says, oh, no, I'll do it my way. It's just ludicrous if you think about it. Verse 4 says, what does verse 4 say? What did Abel do by faith? It didn't really matter what the sacrifice it was the heart that he brought it with. Hmm. He offered a better sacrifice than Cain. And he did so by faith. Now, you hear all these wonderful things about why Abel's offering was better because it was a, a blood sacrifice while Cain just brought, uh, you know, sheaves of wheat or something. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the reason why Abel's offering or sacrifice was better than Cain's was simply because he brought it by faith. He did it believing in God. Now obviously if you believe in God, 
you will be more serious about the sacrifice that you bring. It will be more costly, it will be more dear, all those things are true, but we must see it's all about the faith of the man who brought the sacrifice. It's because he believed God that his sacrifice was better. It's not about the fact that it was a an animal instead of plants. Because in the law of Moses, both um, grain offerings and animal sacrifices were commanded. It's not about the physical substance that he brought. It's about the fact that he believed God while Cain did not. And through this faith which Abel had, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, that he was in a right standing with God. My righteous one shall live by faith. It's not your deeds that please God, it is whether you believe God. That doesn't mean you can live like you want, because your your deeds will show whether you believe God. But you can do things which look wonderful. Go and give all kinds of money to the poor and do all kinds of wonderful projects. But without faith, it's all dead works. Without faith, it means nothing. Works without faith are dead. But faith without works is just as dead. Through faith, Abel obtained the testimony that he was righteous and God testifying about his gifts. It's amazing. God said that he was pleased with these gifts which Abel brought. And through faith, though Abel is dead, he still speaks. He's long dead. But the testimony that God has given concerning him still speaks today. The sacrifice that he brought still speaks today because he believed God. Who's the next man that we read about? Enoch. And what happened to Enoch? He was taken up. What does that mean? Yes. He um, was taken up into heaven. He was taken up into the presence of God without dying. He was taken up so that he would not see death. He was one of only two persons to whom this ever happened. Does anyone know whom the other one is? Not Moses. Moses actually died. Elijah. Uh, the scripture says that Moses died on the mountain where, where he went up. So, Enoch and Elijah never died. Quite an amazing privilege. Why did this happen to Enoch? What does uh, verse 5 says? So, by, by faith. Because he believed God. And he was not found because God took him up. But now before this amazing thing of being translated straight into heaven, it says, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. To paraphrase all that Genesis says about Enoch is, he was born when his father was this old. He lived for 365 years. He walked with God and then he was no more. He walked with God for 365 years and then he was taken up. Enoch walked with God 
And how did he walk with God? By believing God. He was pleasing to God. There is scarcely a more wonderful testimony that can be given of a man. Excepting, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the the God-man. But speaking about, I can't even say mere mortal men, because this man wasn't mortal, he was taken up straight into immortality. But the normal people like us, what an amazing thing to say. He walked with God, and he did that because he believed God, because he trusted in God, he relied on God. And therefore he was pleasing to God, and then God was pleased just to take him up, without ever having to see death. That's the importance of believing God, of walking day by day with God and walking in faith, trusting in God, relying upon God. So he was pleasing to God. And verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith you cannot please God. You can be as zealous and as religious as you want to be, but without faith it is impossible to please God. No man outside of Christ is pleasing to God. No person who doesn't believe God is pleasing to God. It doesn't matter if you think he lives a good life and he does all this great stuff for the poor and he's... doing this wonderful life, as the people would say, is displeasing to God. Because in his very being, he is insulting the character of the infinitely holy God by not trusting in him. Now, if it's impossible to please God without faith, then it means... Everything that you do must be done in faith. And indeed Romans 14 verse 23 says that everything which does not come from faith is sin. Anything about which your conscience convicts you that you that you can't do this with a clear conscience, it's sin. It might not be sin for someone else, but it's sin for you. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is done in your own strength, with reliance upon yourself. It's sin, because you should be trusting God. Of course, whatever you do that's contrary to his word, obviously that is sin, because you are not believing what he said. But please realize, it's not only doing things which are wrong, as people would say, sleeping around is wrong, and getting drunk is wrong. Of course, that is sin, it's wicked, it's despicable. But anything which is not done in faith is not pleasing to God. There must be a reliance upon God, a thankfulness towards God, a trusting in God, in whatever you do. Otherwise it's impossible to please Him. For the one who comes to God must believe. He must believe two things. What are the two things which he says one must believe in order to come to God? <coughs> that he is, that's the one, and the other one? That he rewards those who seek him. Now he's writing to people who obviously believe in the existence of God. But he says you must Trust, you must rely that God really is in the first place. Even when he seems not to be. Even if you are like Job going through absolute chaos and you've got no idea where God is, why he's allowing this, what is going on, you must still trust that God is there, that he really is. It is not too difficult to believe in God when things are going well. But the question is when things are going really 
badly in your own opinion when things are really tough do you still believe that God is and do you still believe that he is the way that scripture says he is or do you start thinking oh he's this mean spirited dictator or do you still trust that he is good that he is kind that he knows what he's doing the one thing to believe is to believe that God is whether things are going well or not whether you feel that he is or not to be sure that he is the second one is to believe that he is a reward of those who seek him in other words that you are not seeking him in vain God rewards those who seek him ok, hy weet na God toekom moet geloo dat God is al lyk dit nie of hy is nie of het goed gaan of slecht gaan om steeds oortuig te wees God is is makkelijk om in God te geloo wanneer dit goed gaan maar die vraag is, is hy nog steeds oortuig hy is daar en hy is in beheer wanneer dit slecht gaan en die tweede punt God is een belooner van die wat omsoek met ander woorde, jy soek om nie te vergeefs so that is what you need to to believe you must believe that God is really there you must believe that if you seek him you shall find him because if you don't believe that then you will you might pray because you're religious but you might receive no answer because uh, prayer has just become a duty or you pray and you say oh yeah I hope this helps you know just as well fire a shotgun in all directions maybe something hits but he's saying you must actually be convinced that the God who is hears when people cry out to him that he rewards those who diligently who earnestly seek him now the whole idea of seek means that it's not always as easy and as quick as you would have it Seek means that he must be searched out. It's not just, oh, God, help me, okay. And then everything is right. Seeking speaks of spending time, of waiting upon the Lord. A friend of mine uses this illustration. If I came into your house and you had just received a new car the new car was standing next to the house and I come in there and I say oh when are you going to drive your new car oh um, the keys are gone so what are you going to do oh I'm going to seek for the keys now if you've lost the keys to your new car are you just going to hmm look on the cupboard and behind the vase and then say, oh well, I haven't found it. Uh, the, car, the car will just have to stand and rust outside for 20 years. Now you'll turn the house upside down. You'll seek until you have found that key. And And that's the idea. Seeking with the purpose to find. You know, we live in a time when... <laughs> It's very much in vogue to say I'm a seeker, but that's the biggest lie because most people who say they are seeking, they are trying very hard not to find anything. Because if you find something, then you have to do something with what you find. Most people who say they're searching for the truth or seeking for the truth, they're lying through their teeth. The last thing they want to do is find the truth because then they'll have to act in accordance with it. So, People say, I'm seeking. That actually means I'm just running around the bush and pretending that I can't see anything, hoping very hard that nothing actually jumps up in front of me and then I have to do something about it. So that's not the way to see God. If you see God, then you must search for Him with the purpose of finding Him. The way that Jacob wrestled with the angel saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Not in an arrogant way, but in a desperate way. It's not speaking about arrogance, it's speaking about desperation. Saying, God, you are my only hope, 
and I'm seeking you until you uh, here until you help. Those who seek him like that will not seek him in vain because he is a rewarder of those who seek him. As surely as he is, as surely he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you search for him, if you seek for him with all your heart, you will find him. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. He was warned about a flood which he had never seen. He didn't know what a flood was. Definitely didn't know what a worldwide flood looked like. But he was warned by God of something which wasn't seen. There weren't ominous clouds hanging around for many years. There weren't weather forecasters saying, oh, some global change, global climatic change is taking place, it's going to rain. God told him, a flood is coming. He had no physical evidence for that, but God, God told him, a flood is coming. And in fear, in godly fear, in reverence, in respect for God, he built an ark. After God warned him, it's going to rain. I'm sure there must have been many mockers saying, "Excuse me, Noah, what are you building that big boat for? Oh, it's going to rain. Noah, this is the desert. You must be crazy." Noah, why are you building this big wooden thing? Because a flood is coming, it's going to destroy the world. Noah, you are crazy. But Noah believed God when no one else did. And he prepared an ark. You say, you see, he could have said, oh, I believe God, a flood is coming. But you know, it's quite expensive to build an ark. I'll just wait till the rain falls and jump on a piece of driftwood. He had to do this thing which appeared completely crazy in the eyes of the world. But he did it because he believed God. You see, his faith went was evidenced by his works. He could have said, I believe God. But if he didn't build the ark, he showed that he wasn't believing God. And that's how we can say we believe the Bible, but if we don't do what it says, then we're just playing games with ourselves. So by faith, Noah built this ark after being warned by God about things not yet seen. And he prepared this ark for the salvation of his household. You see, his whole, his whole house was saved because he believed God. Now don't get that wrong, parents. Your faith is not going to save your children because Noah's children and their wives had to go into the ark for themselves. But if Noah didn't build the ark, there would have been no ark. Now on the one hand, this ark led to the salvation of Noah's household. And on the other hand, Noah condemned the world by his faith. Because he, by believing God, showed how wrong the other people were by not believing God. You see, every time you read a story about someone who trusted God, and I love reading it, it's so great to read it, but one must be so careful when you read about people who believed God that you are not condemning yourself because they believed God, they found Him trustworthy. Why won't you believe Him? And then he says, Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith an heir of the righteousness. He didn't earn it, it was given to him. This right standing with God was given to him as a gift, but it comes to those who believe God. 
Then he turns to quite a famous character in the Old Testament, Abram. What is the first thing which we read here about Abram? What did Abram do by faith? Firstly, he obeyed. And he obeyed to do what? Yes. God called him. God said, leave your family. You can read it in Genesis 12. God said to him, leave your family. Go away from that place. Go to the land which I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going. And often people say, oh, if I can just know where I have to go, then I'll go there. But before he knew where the destination was, all that he knew was he must set out from where he is now. And he did. He obeyed God. When God said, leave your family. Leave everything that's dear to you. And go to the place which I will show you. He did. Because he believed God. Therefore he obeyed God. So he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So that was the start. And then what happened after that in verse 9? How did he live? In a tent as an alien. Yes. As a stranger. He lived as a Alien in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So here was the one to whom the land had been promised. But while he was living in the land, he was just a foreigner there. I hope you can see that this is totally, exactly, diametrically the opposite of what many churches preach today. Oh, the kingdom, now. The land, now. Every place where you set the foot of your soul shall be your land. Oh, what was that idolatrous thing, the prayer of Jabez of, oh, that you would increase my territory. Oh, I just want more land and more land and more land. Abram lived. Abram was the real heir. He was really entitled to that. God actually made the promise to him. Many people imagine that God made promises to them which he did not make. But God actually made the promise to Abram. It was his land. He was the one who was going to inherit the land. But all of his life he had to live on that land as a foreigner. And it is faith that enabled him to do that. When God says to you, uh, I will give this land to your descendants. And you live in this land, but the land never becomes yours. It, it remains the property of these other people. Then it takes faith to say, I am living in the land of promise. My children shall inherit this land. See, it's one thing to go. It's exciting when God speaks to you and says, go to this other land. But then after living a few years in the land and, well, uh, nothing seems to be happening. I'm just living here in tents. I'm just a foreigner and an alien here. Then it's easy to um, start saying, well, maybe I heard wrong, you know. Maybe just go back to my family. At least there I've got a real tangible inheritance. You must realize this. Abram left something he would have inherited from his family if he stayed where he was. He left something real, visible, something that could be seen. He left this for something which could not be seen. He left that place where he had, physically speaking, a sure inheritance. He left that to go to this other land where he was just an alien. And yet he continued to live in this other land. 
because he trusted that the God who promised will do what he has said. And he did this, verse 10 says, because he wasn't concerned only about a piece of land near uh, what is the middle answers here now? Um, anyway, the Mediterranean. He wasn't looking for a piece of land near the Mediterranean. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I will pick up on this theme later again. A real city. Abram was looking for something real. Now I said he left something real. You see, that real thing which he left, his own country, his own people, isn't as real as this eternal city which God has promised. Because all things on this earth, as real as they are, they are only temporary. They will pass. They will come to nothing. It's all going to go up in a big bang. It's all going to go up in smoke. It's all going to go up in flames. It's going to disappear. It will be rolled up. But the eternal city which God builds, the new Jerusalem, heaven, the real kingdom, is a city which cannot pass away. A city built by God. A city which has foundations. That means something which stands secure. So what are the foundations of this city? The promise of God. God himself. He wasn't concerned about the physical ground he was walking on. He was concerned about the heavenly inheritance. Now I ask, do you look for a city whose architect and builder is God? Or are you content here? Are you happy here with all the nice stuff that there is here? We live in the most prosperous time in the history of the world. We've got more stuff than people ever had. And it's quite easy to become comfortable here. The question is, do you long for something more permanent, for something more real? Or are you happy and content with this life? Well, if you are, I'm sorry for you, but it's going to pass. You can have the greatest wife in the world, but in 70 years she's going to be dead. You aren't going to be married anymore. 70, 80 years, I'm not, but you get the idea. Um, definitely 100 years, I think. Very safe to say that. All things on this earth pass. Are you yearning? Are you looking for something more real? Like Abram was. A real city built by God. Verse 11 speaks about Sarah. Sarah received ability to conceive because she believed even beyond the proper time of life. She was way beyond childbearing age. She considered him faithful who had promised. Now if you read the Old Testament account, you will see she actually had a time of doubting. When the promise first came to her, she laughed. But then after that, she must have become convinced that God is true. And a year later, a child was born. Now remember all this time, Abram was living in the promised land and it was promised to his descendants, this land will come and he didn't even have a son. It wasn't the easy life. But then because Abram and Sarah believed God, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that. 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. This is um, not a medical miracle. It's a divine miracle. 
I mean, they weren't 60 and 50. It was like 190. It's like, so that's completely, absolutely clear that this is God's doing and only God's doing. And from them there were born as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Because they believed God. And then he turns back to the eternal perspective. Which is why I'm so glad that um, this book finally arrived. It's just the right time. Living in the light of eternity. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. They hadn't actually yet received that which was promised. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, he says all these people died in faith. They died expecting the promise, awaiting the promise. They had already seen the promise from afar, but they hadn't yet received it. But they saw it and they welcomed it. You see, that's the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. They died without actually receiving the promise, but they were expecting. When the, the time to die came and it hadn't yet happened what had, prom- what had been promised to them. They were still believing God that what He said He was going to do. They saw that it was not about the earthly things. They were expecting the heavenly promise, the eternal inheritance. And they confessed, here on earth I'm a stranger and an exile. Just pilgrims passing through. You're not supposed to build your kingdom here on earth. You can just read this chapter to see how far Western Christianity has fallen from the truth. Because here, it's all about making your earthly um, inheritance or your earthly existence comfortable and enjoyable and building your own little kingdom here on earth. That's what it's about for everybody today, but that's not the way that Believers in God should live. Strangers on earth means you do things which people find strange, like building an ark. It means you don't live for the things which people normally live for. If you actually believe God, if you actually live like a Christian, people will think you're strange. Because you just don't fit in. You're not living for the things that everyone is living for. Strangers and exiles is even a harder word. Exile mean, means you're not really in your own country. You've been displaced from your own country. Why? Because your reward is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Are you living like that? He says in verse 14, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. He says, this is not my own. I'm seeking something better. Are you doing that? Is this true about you? He said, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. You see, most people after coming to faith in Christ, get many opportunities to turn away from Him. Few people are like the cross on the, the thief on the cross who just believed in Christ and was dead a few hours later. Many people get years in which the world and the devil will come to you often and say, listen, don't you want to pack in that belief in Christ? Why don't you compromise? Why are you so serious about following the Lord? Just let go, do do it like everyone does it. Do it like all the church people does it. Just compromise. Just don't. I mean, you haven't seen. Aren't you just living a dream? Shouldn't you maybe, you know, live a bit more normally so that if all of that doesn't work out, then at least you haven't had such a bad life? Do you really want to screw yourself in this life just for something which you haven't seen? Are you sure you want to do that? 
those kinds of ideas a lot of opportunity to return Abram could have packed in and gone back to Ur of the Chaldeans many times but he didn't and that's the question of are you going to persevere in faith are you going to believe Christ and follow Christ to the end or not He says, if they had been thinking of that country, they would have had opportunity to return. You see, their heart wasn't even back in their, in their old, um, home. Contrast this to the Israelites who came out of Egypt. They were continually saying, oh, it was better in Egypt. And in the end they all died in the wilderness. They were continually wanting to go back to the land of slavery. Abram was different because he believed God. Even though he had to live as an alien, in a tent, as a stranger in a foreign country, he said, this is where I want to be because this is where God called me to be. I'm not going back. I want to be a, be with God. I want to obey God. I want to follow God to the end. And then verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Like those who look for a city which has foundations, he says these people who believe they desire a better country. Not an earthly country, they desire a heavenly country. And he says, therefore, this is amazing, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has prepared a city for those who believe. And those who live expecting, who live for eternity, who live for the heavenly country, he says God is not ashamed to be called their God. He says God is not ashamed to say, yes, I'm the God of that man, because that man is looking for a heavenly country. If we take this then one would have to say God is probably ashamed of being called the God of many people today because they don't desire a heavenly country. They live for this earth. But if your heart is in heaven, if your heart is in eternity, if you are really longing to leave this earthly existence and to be with God forever, then God is not ashamed to be called your God. That, and you can be sure of this, he has prepared a city for you. A place to live. Where you won't be a stranger and a pilgrim and an alien, but where you will be citizen forever in a city which cannot disappear or be destroyed. God has prepared a sure and a firm eternal inheritance for those who believe in him and who live with that eternal perspective. I've probably quoted Jim Elliot, the missionary martyr, before he had a famous saying, he is no fool who gives that up which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. To cling to this earth is foolish because you're going to lose it. The day of Christ is coming and the day of your death is coming. I don't know which one will be first, but whichever one comes first, the day is coming when you will force, when you will be forced to let go of your family, of your possessions, of the very clothes on your back. You are not going out of this world with the clothes on your back. You are going out of this world with nothing. You can't keep these things. You are going to lose it. So don't cling to this world. Rather give up this world for Christ so that you may gain that which you can never lose, an eternal inheritance, an eternal kingdom. That means make difficult choices. That means give up things, let go of things, give away things, even to the point of where it hurts, where it's detrimental to yourself, 
do that for Christ. Not just for any reason, but for Christ, by faith in Christ, and you'll have an eternal inheritance. Don't live for this world, it will disappoint you, because you'll lose it. But if you live for heaven, if you live for the eternal reward, then you will gain something, eternal life, an eternal reward which you cannot lose.